1: over 7 billion people in the world, we all have one thing in common. Every day, we all get dressed.
2: Welcome to Dressed, the history of fashion, a podcast where we explore the who, what, when of why we wear. We are fashion historians and your hosts, Cassidy Zachary and April Callahan. I'm going to go out on a limb here and say that when most people hear the name Gordon Parks, the first thing that comes to mind is not fashion photography, Cass.
1: I'm going to have to agree with you. Uh, However, this world-renowned 20th century luminary is often referred to as a renaissance man. He was a poet, a best-selling novelist, and memoirist. He wrote several autobiographies throughout his lifetime. He was a gifted pianist and composer. He was a Hollywood director. He directed five films that include the groundbreaking 1971
2: film Shaft. Oh, my gosh. Amazing. I love I black exploitation <laughs> films. We should really, really consider doing an entire episode on the fashion in some of those films because it is badass. <laughs> um, but what Gordon was actually most famous for um, in terms of his work life was being a photojournalist for Life magazine. And he was a self-taught photographer who brought a face to American crime, poverty, and the African-American experience during some of the most pivotal moments of American history. He photographed and befriended some of the most important figures of the 20th century, including Muhammad Ali and Malcolm X.
1: But really more than a photographer, Parks shared an intimacy and trust with his subjects that earned him an unprecedented access to their lives and tribulations. He was really a man who understood many of his subjects' experiences of racism, bigotry, poverty, because he too had lived them himself. Quote, whatever I've suffered is what I've become, he once said. And he used his camera as a weapon, as he liked to say, in the fight for justice. Quote, I pointed my camera mostly at people who needed someone to speak for them because they couldn't speak for themselves. That Gordon Parks was also a fashion photographer? Well, that just adds the many layers of this fascinating individual.
2: In narratives about Parks, his work as a fashion photographer if mentioned at all, is mostly posited as a mere footnote to his genius. And yet, as we will discover today, the two seemingly polarizing fields of photojournalism and fashion photography worked in tandem to define the career and brilliance of a man who wore many hats. All I have to say is thank the fashion goddesses that he worked in this medium. Because it really gives (laughs) us an opportunity to talk about this amazing man on our show. The youngest of
1: 15 children, that's right, I said 15 children, Parks was born
2: to parents
1: Sarah and Jackson Parks on November 30th, 1912 in Fort Scott, a small town in rural Kansas where Gordon's father was a farmer.
2: Which I've been to, by the way. I've been there because I grew up in Kansas myself.
1: That's true. You you did grow up there. (laughs) Yeah. And in his
2: 2005
1: memoir, published the year before his death, the 89-year-old Parks reflected back on the beginnings of his life saying nostalgia blankets me when I think back over the years past. Sometimes I knock on the door of my memory and it opens to an event that came close to denying me a future of any kind. I was born dead. Indeed, the world might never have met Gordon Parks had a young, quick-thinking doctor not plunged his lifeless body into a tub of icy water, wrote Parks with determination he had disallowed even death to defeat him. And in thanks to the man who saved her son, Park's mother gave him the doctor's name, Gordon.
2: Park calls his hometown as a place quote, touched by all the hands of nature, bathed in lovely twilights, burned in scorching summers, frozen in icy winters. But this paradise was also in his words quote, the mecca of bigotry, where discrimination was solidly built on the stones of segregation during those days. I ate hatred a lot. End quote. He goes on to write about the numerous friends he knew that were murdered, as well as a brutal white cop that terrorized his neighborhood. Racism was an unfortunate part of Gordon's daily life, but so too was love. And it is because of his hardworking mother and father that Kansas was both a heaven and a hell for Parks. And throughout his life, Parks
1: would return time and again to his formative years in Kansas. He would do it through his poetry, his camera, but also film. In 1969, he became the first African-American to direct a major studio film, writing and directing The Learning Tree, which was a film based on his semi-autobiographical novel of the same name. And embedded in Parks' nostalgia for his childhood are the harsh realities of poverty and racism, and these are two things that would very much inform his work for his entire career.
2: Sadly, though, Parks' beloved mother died when he was just 16, And his father sent him to live with one of his older sisters and her husband in St. Paul, Minnesota. Compared to his small town, St. Paul was really an intimidating big city for the impressionable Parks, who would always remember what his father told him just before he left. He said, Just follow your mama's teaching and you'll be all right. But Parks had a
1: really hard go from the beginning. He and his sister's husband fought constantly, and after one particularly bad fight, Parks found himself thrown out in the cold in 30 below zero weather. And he was suddenly homeless, writing, I was at the bottom of it, and there was only one direction to take, and that was up. Parks had played the piano since he was six years old. His mother had taught him. And it was this talent that would prove his saving grace during these uncertain times as he really struggled to find his footing. And he soon found a job playing the piano in a brothel of all places, And this would be followed by a series of odd jobs. And he would really alternate stints as a musician with work as a busboy and a waiter.
2: And this was the era of the Great Depression, mind you. So not an easy time for many people. And Parks really struggled to find his place and to find happiness. But things started to begin to look up a bit in 1932, when at the age of 20, he met Sally Alvis on a blind date. The couple was married the following year and welcomed their first child, Gordon Parks Jr., in 1935. But Parks struggled to support his young family, and his work often took him away from home for long periods of time. And it was while working as a waiter on a train that he was introduced to the powerful photography that would effectively rechart the course of his life. Thanks to discarded magazines left by
1: passengers on the train, Parks came face-to-face with the work of distinguished documentary photographers such as Walker Evans and Dorothea Lange, whose lenses captured the abject realities of life of the Great Depression. And these photographers, they were part of this social documentary project under the Farm Security Administration, which was a New Deal agency that was created in 1937 to battle the poverty that was almost an epidemic during the Great Depression across the country. Quote, all were attacking the evils of
2: poverty with camera wrote parks, capturing realities that he himself knew all too well. These powerful images continued to resonate with Parks when in 1937, he saw a newsreel footage of the sinking of the USS Panay while on a train layover in Chicago. Parks was in awe of the stylish cameraman, Norman Alley, who appeared on stage after the short clip. When not long after he happened to walk by a pawn shop and saw a camera in the window, well, Parks' lifelong passion for photography began. He said, quote, Still suffering the cruelties of my past, I wanted a voice to help me escape it. In 1938, I bought a camera for $7.50, and that would become my voice.
1: But the powerful FSA photography was not the only inspiration behind Park's new venture. And in fact, from the very beginning of his foray into photography, Fashion itself appears to have been a driving force behind his aspirations, because among the many discarded magazines on the train, Parks had also found Vogue magazine, and he was captivated by the images depicted within, and he studied them thoroughly and with curiosity. He remembered, quote, along with its fashion pages, I studied the names of its famous photographers, Steichen, Blumenfeld, Horst, Beaton, Heinegen-Hüner, thinking meanwhile that my own name could look quite natural among them. (laughs)
2: that's cute i like that yeah Uh, think big (laughs) parks would later go on to say the reason i've done so many things is not because i was a genius but because i had to eat i couldn't afford to take up photography for fun so the minute i had a camera in my hand i had to make money with it in one way or another and by 1939 Parks was photographing for the St. Paul Recorder in St. Paul, as well as the St. Paul YWCA and the International Institute. And it was in the year of 1940 that would really prove a turning point in his career. That year, he and Sally welcomed their daughter, Tony, and Parks begins to shoot fashions for Frank Murphy's Town and Country Department Store.
1: Now, Parks writes that he was often asked why he did not allow anger and bigotry to maim him throughout his life. And his response was, quote, "...the answer lies in the goodness of people who, regardless of their color, reached out to me when I needed help. And one of these people was Mrs. Madeline Murphy, wife of Frank Murphy, owner of one of the most exclusive women's clothing stores in St. Paul." And Park says he went to every department store in town asking for an opportunity to photograph their merchandise, but he was repeatedly turned away. But such would have been the case here had Madeline not stopped her husband from ushering Parks out the door, as he had intended to do, and she insisted that her husband give the young stranger a chance.
2: But with this chance came one tiny problem. Parks actually had no idea what he was doing when it came to fashion (laughs) photography. Make it till Uh, you make it. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Um, He had only really ever studied other people's photographs of fashion. He had never actually photographed fashion himself. But everprising Parks was able to borrow the proper equipment from a friend who owned a camera shop. And he showed up to his first photo shoot prepared. He impressed the Murphys and I think maybe even himself a little bit. Everything was looking great until Parks took the camera film to be processed and discovered a huge problem. Uh-oh. And we're going to find out what that was after a brief sponsor break. Welcome back. And back to Parks' problem. What happened was, when he took the film to be developed, he discovered that all but one image had been double exposed. Oh, no. Oopsies. Um, But he just decided, he's like, okay, I've already done this job. I'm going to put all my faith in this one image. He made a huge print of it. And then he put it outside the department store on an easel to greet people upon their arrival. And Madeline was thrilled. And his job with the company was secured. In a testament to the
1: importance of this experience in Park's life, he and Madeline remained friends throughout their lives, and when he later asked her why she decided to give him his break, she said, Well, I don't know, Gordon. I think I was just mad at Frank for something that day. (laughs) I can relate to this. (laughs)
2: Um, And it was while photographing for the Murphys that Parks met one of their clients. Her name was Marva Lewis, and she was the wife of world champion boxer Joe Lewis. She was really impressed with his work and asked if he would take her portrait And after he did, um, she implored him to move to Chicago where she promised to find him work among her affluent friends. And apparently she must have been pretty persuasive in this because in 1941, um, Parks packs up his family and they moved to the Windy City. A friend found him a studio with a dark room in the Southside Art Center and Marva kept her promise. Many society women sat before his camera, wrote Parks, Quote, suddenly my pockets were welcoming the kind of money they had never known before.
1: But despite all of his success, Parks knew that above all else, he wanted to use his camera to, quote, strike at the evil of poverty. And it seemed like everywhere he looked in Chicago, there was an opportunity to do so. And within his first year, Parks accumulated such an impressive body of work that he held an exhibition at the Southside Art Center. Subsequently, becoming the first photographer to receive the Julius Rosenwald Fellowship, which was a grant largely focused on supporting the African-American community. And between 1917 and its end in 1948, the fund donated over $70 million to schools, museums, and other Black institutions, as well as to artists, writers, and intellectuals,
2: including one Gordon Parks. This fellowship provided Parks with a monthly stipend and also a choice of where he wanted to pursue the fellowship. Where do you think that he picked, Cass? I'll give you a hint. It maybe ties back a little bit to one of the magazines that he found on the train. Well,
1: I do know that he loved Vogue, but something tells me his choice has something more to do with the FSA photographers he so admired. You
2: would be correct. Parks packed up his family yet again and moved to Washington, D.C., where he began his fellowship at the Farm Security Administration under the guidance of Roy Stryker the man responsible for the documentary photographic project of the division. In other words, he was basically now working with the person who had enlisted the talents of all the photographers that Parks had so admired. So this was a really big deal for him.
1: And it really was, and he was very excited for this opportunity. But any illusions that he may have had about this city were quickly squashed because Stryker sent Parks out on his own to explore the city for the first time. And Parks writes that he, I went with enthusiasm, the sky was without clouds, the entire universe seemed to greet me with promise, but soon my contentment began crumbling. In this radiant historic place, racism was rampant. White restaurants shooed me to the back door. White theaters refused me. The tone of white clerks at Julius Garfinkel's department store riled me. Clothing I had hoped to buy there went unbought. I hurried back to Stryker. My face told him
2: everything." And apparently, Stryker responded as such, quote, obviously ran into some bigots out there this afternoon. Well, it's not enough to take one person's picture and label it bigot. You have to get to the source of their bigotry. And that's not easy. The camera becomes a powerful weapon when put to good use. Talk to other black people who have spent their entire lives here, end quote.
1: And it was not long after this conversation that Parks took what would become one of his most famous photographs, American Gothic, named after the iconic Grant Wood painting with the American farm couple that are standing side by side and the man's holding a pitchfork and they're both staring straight ahead. Well, Parks' version was of Ella Watson, a black cleaning woman he had observed mopping the floor at the FSA one evening. And the stage really set itself. He says that in the lobby of the FSA in front of a hanging American flag, Ella stares straight into the camera, a broom in one hand, a mop in the other. It is a strikingly poignant photograph that says so much without even
2: having to say a word. Gordon spent the next week photographing Ella at her home and with her family in a style that would come to define his work of this period. There was no sugarcoating the harsh realities that Parks bore witness to. He reproduced them for the viewer in black and white with a stark clarity that made no illusions about the everyday lives of his subjects. Unfortunately for Parks, the FSA was abolished the following year. Quote, Southern senators and congressmen had gnawed the Farm Security Administration to pieces, he wrote. Its pictures, crammed with Americans poor and dispossessed, practically amounted to the government's indictment of itself. Wow.
1: Yeah. Throughout the 1940s, Parks would continue to intimately work with Stryker on a series of photographs, including a stint at the OWI, or Office of War Information, where he was tasked with photographing the all-Black 332nd Fighter Group. So, this is World War II, mind you, and the United States military was segregated. So... When Parks was prevented from traveling with the airmen overseas, this is actually something he credits to systematic racism. Parks says the government did not want the achievements of these men documented. So after that, he left the OWI and he went to work with Stryker in New York on a public relations campaign for the Standard Oil Company. Now, he was hired to document the advantages of oil in the lives of people across the country but really more than a typical publicity campaign, what Parks produced was a poignant essay of rural life, its highs and lows across the country during the 1940s.
2: Of this time, Parks writes, quote, Black people were on the move against racism, and I wanted to move with them. The right forum was uncertain. Life magazine was the most likely prospect, but a multitude of white photographers had tried and failed to join the staff of that prestigious publication, end quote. In 1948, however, Parks walked into the offices of the magazine unannounced. You might notice there's a little bit of a common theme here. He was not shy. I have a theory about this, Cass. I I say that um if you ask with humility and politeness and sincerity, more often than not people do want to help you. It's true. I really think it's true. And if and and if and if they say no, then you had exactly what you had before, which is yeah. You know you have nothing to lose you know absolutely (laughs) um so parks he, he might not have had an appointment but what he did have was charisma determination and talent and that was enough to impress the pictures editor wilson hicks um to hire him
1: his first photographic essay for the magazine is also one of his most famous and parks gained the trust of a 16 year old gang leader by the name of red jackson bringing Red's perilous world to the life readership in this haunting, jarring photographic essay that revealed the harsh realities of gang life. And this included up-close photographs of beatings and fights that happened, murder and death, but it also revealed the heart and struggle of these young men that were just trying to find their way in the world. And the story was eye-opening, and it was heart-wrenching, and the life readership was transfixed, And very shortly after, Parks was hired onto the staff, becoming the first Black staff photographer in the history of the publication. And by 1949, Parks had completed over 40 assignments for the magazine.
2: In his 20-plus year career at the magazine, Parks continued to pin one poignant, captivating visual narrative after another. Whether it be Muhammad Ali, Malcolm X, or a six-12-year-old boy named Flavio who was living in the slums of Rio de Janeiro, it was clear that Parks cared about his subjects and that they cared for him back. He was the godfather to one of Malcolm X's sons, after all. He even brought Flavio to the United States for treatment with the help of thousands of dollars in donations from Life magazine readers.
1: Yeah, Park's stories revealed his sincerity and his heart that he really put into his work, this captivated audiences. And so is it any wonder that his work remains as riveting today as it was 50 years ago? If you combine all of his achievements in photojournalism with his work in film and music and poetry, well, you have one of the most important luminaries of the 20th century. But I'm sure our listeners, April, are wondering just what exactly does all of
2: this have to do with fashion? Well, I know the answer to that. there's actually quite a lot. Um, and we're actually going to find out just how fashion photography was a defining element of his career after a word from our sponsors.
1: For a limited time dress listeners, you can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off by visiting rosettastone.com forward slash today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com forward slash today.
2: So join us, dress listeners, in putting
1: on your detective hats and escape to a bygone age of mystery, danger, and romance. Discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android.
2: Running parallel to all of Parks' important social documentarian work from the 1940s to the 1970s was also his work in fashion photography. And you might be thinking to yourself, could the two fields of fashion photography and photojournalism be any more different? Well, the answer is yes and no, I guess, perhaps. But if there was anybody who was going to you know, tackle this and traverse such diverse fields, it was our Renaissance man, Gordon Parks. So according to Parks in
1: 1944, the same year he began working for the Standard Oil Company he also secured his big break in fashion. Through a colleague Parks made an appointment with Alexei Brodovich, the art director of Harper's Bazaar. And this would seem like an amazing opportunity April, except for one giant exception, and that was racism. Uh Because after observing Parks' portfolio, Brodovich first asked him if the work was even his, which is incredibly offensive, but not as much as what he told him next, which was in no uncertain terms, something like, um, your work's great, but because I work for Hearst Corporation, uh, we're not allowed to hire black people for anything. Quote, not even for sweeping floors. I'm sorry.
2: Wow. Whoa. Okay. Makes me feel different about, um, Harper's Bazaar during that time period. Now parks understandably left the office upset, But like so many other obstacles in his life, this experience just served to fortify his determination. After telling Stryker about the experience, he suggested that Parks meet with another fashion luminary, a name we have heard, oh, I don't know, perhaps a few dozen times on the season of (laughs) Dressed. (laughs) Parks was sent to meet the father of modern fashion photography himself, Edward Steichen. Steichen was outraged by that, quote, son of a bitch Brodovich, and he sent Parks directly to Harper Bazaar's rival publication, Vogue, where Parks met with the magazine's art director, Alexander Lieberman. Parks waited with bated breath while Lieberman slowly examined his photographs, but Steichen's instincts were correct, and Lieberman offered Parks a
1: job. According to Parks, his work for Condé Nast publications began with photographing sportswear for Glamour magazine under the direction of Tina Fredericks, who Parks says washed over him like a mother hen. And he really writes that both she and Lieberman were invested in his success from the very beginning. And in six months time, Lieberman entrusted him with a multi-page spread of evening gowns for Vogue, something Parks called the apogee
2: of the opportunity given to him. And Parks really honed his skills during this period and gained valuable insights into the difference between documentary photography and a fashion photograph, writing, quote, in one lay the responsibility to capture a prevailing mood, while in the other, the obligation was to create a mood. Foremost, it was a consideration for what the designers were attempting to express with their creations, and the settings had to be complementary to their efforts. Equally important was the need for good taste in blending the clothes and the backgrounds into graceful compositions, end quote. Ah, I love that. I love that quote. Um, And really, um, for his inspiration, Parks drew a lot on the history of art, particularly painters, um, including the compositions of Renoir, Matisse, Rubens, and a lot of the other artists that he had observed their work um, at the Chicago Art Institute.
1: I do have to say, however, that there is competing information about when exactly Parks went to work for Vogue, because Parks specifically dates it to 1944, and he distinctively remembers it that way. But then you have the Gordon Parks Foundation, which has it dated to 1947. I also contacted the Vogue Archive, and they have no record of Parks before 1947. And even then, the archivist said that his first fashion images do not appear until 1960, so perhaps he wasn't credited um, or a freelancer. So if anyone has any more information on this, please share it with me if you know of any early, early Gordon Parks fashion photographs. What
2: we do know for sure, Cass, though, is that Parks went to work for Life magazine in 1948. And while photojournalism was certainly high at the top of his ambitions, apparently so too was fashion. When he had his first meeting with Wilson Hicks, he was asked what he wanted to photograph for the magazine, Life Magazine. And Parks replied, gang wars up in Harlem and fashion. Two very similar things. (laughs) (laughs) Parks writes, I had been given assignments that
1: I had never expected to earn. Some proved to be as different as silk and iron. Once crime and fashion were served to me on the same day. The color of a Dior gown I photographed one afternoon turned out to be the same color as the blood of a murdered gang member I had photographed earlier that morning up in Harlem. I mean, Parks is really good at romanticizing a lot of um his experiences
2: and his memoirs as you'll as you'll notice. Yeah. I mean, some of them are truly, truly dramatic. Yeah. <laughs> um but his work is particularly interesting in that I don't think that a lot of people would associate Life magazine with fashion, um, but it really truly was a prominent part of the magazine, thanks in part to the fashion editor, Sally Kirkland. And we've even referenced the magazine a couple times um, or used it as sources in our research, um, working on different episodes that have already happened this season. Mm-hmm. Um, because the magazine isn't a fashion magazine specifically, you know, they focused on fashion that was newsmaking so in a lot of times they were even at the forefront of exposing new designs such as the leotard and the monochini which we have already talked about on dressed Mm -hmm. Um, so life magazine really did offer parks this rare opportunity to explore um, different aspects of his career simultaneously
1: and covering fashions for the magazine meant that Parks was sent to Paris to cover the seasonal collections. And he says war had left Paris in want, yet the famed fashion houses of Molyneux, Balenciaga, Chanel, Jacques Fath, and Scaparelli still maintained the elegance of pre-war days. Despite the leftover problems of war, the plush salons were packed with clients from different countries of the world. The aroma of their costly perfumes enveloped the mannequins who pranced up
2: and down the runways. So the beauty of Paris was outside, and Park reveled in his surroundings, saying, quote, For me, Paris was a golden time. What a long way this all was from Kansas and from Harlem. I was intoxicated. I even dared to dream that I would one day live and work here, but that seemed nothing but an impossible dream. End quote. We should know now that for Parks, nothing was impossible. And in 1950, Life magazine transplanted Parks. His wife and now three children, saying three because the couple had their third child, David, in 1944, they transplanted and moved them to Paris. Parks writes, quote, Paris became a beautiful mistress. For the first time in my life, I was relaxing from tension and pressure. My thoughts, continually rampaging from racial conditions, were suddenly becoming as peaceful as snowflakes inspired by the art music and
1: culture around him it is perhaps not surprising that it was while living and working in paris that parks produced some of the most beautiful fashion imagery of his career the most exquisite of which in my opinion is this photograph from 1950 and it's of this model wearing this incredible tiered balenciaga gown and it's made of layers and layers of these leaf-shaped sheared fabric and the gown is topped with this magnificent balenciaga overcoat Really, it's this testament to the Master Cateria's architectural construction, and it's topped with a hat that's perched horizontally on the head, and the model's face peers out from beneath a sheer veil. And perhaps an homage to the fine art master's Park so admired, he has even framed her as if she's in a still-life painting because she's
2: standing next to a basket of artfully arranged fruit. (laughs) (laughs) Um, In another of these photographs from this time period, Four giant evening gowns by Jacques Fath fill the frame. The image is one of utter sophistication and grandeur. It's highly structured, wide-skirted gowns modeled by four incredibly elegant, smiling women. And Park said of his sitters for this photograph, quote, Some models are instantly inspiring, moving like ballerinas and with poetry in their manners, and they are a pleasure to work with. Others were granite-faced colorless as winter leaves, and motionless as tree trunks. A large part of a photographic session was often spent trying to loosen up their mummified expressions. At times, I longed for a course in psychology. It would have proven helpful. Parks also says of his time in Paris, For me, it was a
1: golden time crowned with dazzling gowns and beauteous mannequins. Dorian Lee, Bettina, Janine Klein, Jackie Stoloff, Susie Parker, Carmen, Devima. He's talking about Carmen Della Devima. Sally had found a studio for me, but it was rarely used because Paris's outer face was too compelling. No enclosure, no matter how dramatic, could have transited the blue haze mornings when blood-red suns filtered through the fogs and mists. My backgrounds became the marbled bridges spanning the Seine, ancient buildings, embowered streets, and inflowing boulevards. Something that I
2: found particularly interesting um, was that while living in Paris, Parks' wife Sally also turned her attention to designing hats, and she was apparently quite good at it. Yeah. With the support of her husband um, and his industry connections, Sally was taken on as a trainee with a prestigious designer on the Rue Saint-Honoré. But when Sally was offered a choice to design the spring collection for a French hat maker, she actually refused. I'm, like, scratching my head. Yeah. Um, And it turns out the reason why she said no, she turned down this offer, is that her and her husband had been drifting apart for some time. And when the family returned from Paris after Parks' two-year assignment ended, their marriage was pretty much over. Parks would marry and divorce two more times throughout his life— having another daughter, Leslie, with his second wife, Elizabeth Campbell. Throughout the 1950s, 60s, and 70s, fantasy and reality, fashion
1: and photojournalism would remain two opposing and yet mutually reinforcing forces in Park's life, even if a wife would not. And as mentioned, the Vogue archive does confirm his work with the magazine from 1960 to 1965, and he was also still shooting Fashions for Life magazine at this time. And in a departure from the black and white photography that really dominated his career, Park's work during this period, uh, and during the
2: 1960s specifically, is characterized by this bold use of brilliant color. He says, quote, I tend to use color when it dominates, while certain photographers feel that black and white expresses the real truth of their subject matter. But I have at times found color to be even more acceptable to the eye, end quote. And there's, there's one particular image of his, of Varushka, the legendary model, um, up against a stained glass window that, that immediately comes to mind when we think of his work. She's stunning in all of her 1960s rainbow finery up against this window. Yeah, I
1: mean, there's so many fabulous things happening with color in the 60s. How could you not express it? Um, and he has this wonderful series of photographs from 1961. And he captures this model, and she's dancing across the camera. And she's this beautiful orange and pink James Galanos gown. And the world and the dress are just swirling around her. But she is clear as day. And it's Park's ability to capture his model and movements that this is one of the defining elements of his work. Parks writes of his years in fashion photography. It was a good time, a joyous passage blossoming with beautiful clothes and vibrantly lovely models of that era. And with an undying love for both, I pursued them in Paris and other worldly bastions
2: of haute couture for decades to come. In 1970, Parks expanded his purview yet again when he was approached by the young founders of Essence, a new monthly magazine aimed at, quote, the young, urban, inquisitive, and acquisitive Black woman, end quote. He started out with his toe-in, remembers Ed Lewis, who was one of the magazine's founders, and he goes on to say, and he ended up with the top of his head in. Parks served as the editor-in-chief for the first three years of the magazine, yet another platform within which he could explore both of his love of fashion and his social justice prerogative, pinning powerful portfolios of women like Rosa Parks, while also photographing fashion spreads of the season's latest accessories.
1: And many might question the importance of Park's work in fashion, really, when you consider the broader scope of his life and career, especially when you compare his fashion photographs of, well, they're almost exclusively of white women. And when you compare these with his work covering the plights of African-American, I mean, the two are immediately at odds with one another. But interviewed by Essence Magazine in 1972, Park said, quote, I don't feel at this stage in my life that I have to apologize for any way I go because I've paid my dues both ways. For 10 years, I traveled all over the world seeking out black people. I covered Martin Luther King's and Malcolm X's deaths. I also did royalty or covered the fashions in Paris, London, and Spain. It was a relief for me from the drudgery, of the daily onslaught of prejudice, discrimination, and bigotry I suffered as a boy I want relief from it. I have a right to relief from it.
2: Gordon Parks continued to work and inspire up until his death in 2006 at the age of 93 years old. Thanks to his numerous autobiographies and also documentaries and exhibitions about his work, Parks' contributions and legacies have been ingrained into the public consciousness. His heart, passion, and fight for social justice and reform immortalized in a lifetime of images that he left us. And while his work in fashion might often feel at odds with his photojournalistic pursuits, they truly speak to a man who, despite the hardships of his life and the world in which he lived, sought to capture beauty in all of its forms, something he pursued until the very end of his life. That does it for us today,
1: Dress listeners. May you all consider the legacy of this incredible man, Gordon Parks, next
2: time you get dressed. Remember, you can find images to accompany each week's episode on Instagram at Dressed underscore podcast. This is also our Twitter handle. You can find us on Facebook at Dressed Podcast without the underscore. If you'd like to email us, you can do so at Dressed at HowStuffWorks.com. And don't forget about our brand new merch store where you
1: can get Dressed approved t-shirts, mugs, notebooks, stickers, and super cute tote bags. Just go to www.teepublic.com forward slash dress. We have added several new designs, so check it out. And last but not least, thank you again to our producers at How Stuff Works, Holly Fry, and Casey Pegram.